I'm told that a man committed murder and he was on trial for it. The evidence of his guilt was overwhelming, although they couldn't produce a body. And so recognizing the high probability that his client would be convicted for murder, the defense attorney decided to resort to a trick, which I'm sure Cindy Helfridge will not um, when she's in a court of law. <laughs> Men and women of the jury, he said, I have a surprise for you. Within one minute, the person presumed dead in this case will walk through that door. And so every eye rushed toward the courtroom door. A minute passed, nothing happened. And so the, finally the attorney said, actually, I made the whole thing up. But since you all looked, I put it to you that you have a reasonable doubt as to whether anyone was killed and I trust you to return a verdict of not guilty. The jury left the room and returned a few minutes later with a verdict of guilty. But how, the attorney inquired. You must have had some doubt because I saw all of you stare at the door. Oh, we looked all right, the foreman replied, but your client did not. <laughs> now, what do you do when doubt gets the better of you? That is the question for today. What do you do when doubt gets the better of you? We will look at this question through the lens of the greatest man ever to be born of a woman. That was Jesus' description of him. We turn to Luke chapter 7, and we will read from verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And you know that we have been working our way through um, chapter 7 of all the miracles that Jesus had done um, in that area. And so the disciples of John bring a report back to John of all the things that they saw Jesus do. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, meaning to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I want to suggest to all of us this morning that faith and doubt are not mutually exclusive. In other words, it is possible for us to have faith and still have doubt. And if we have doubt, that does not necessarily mean that we do not have faith. Faith and doubt are not mutually exclusive. Here's our question. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? That was John's question as he is in a moment of doubt as to whether or not Jesus was indeed the Messiah. 
Now, someone rightly said that doubt is very much like a hitchhiker thumbing a ride with one hand in one direction and the other pointing in the other direction, unsure of which way he wants to go. What do you do when doubt gets the better of you? Do you ask questions like, God, are you really there? Are you for real? Can I really trust you? Are your promises in your word really true and trustworthy? If you've asked any of these questions, then you are in very good company. In fact, you are in the class, the same class of John the Baptist. He had preached the gospel faithfully and fearlessly, calling people to repent of their sins and to turn to God and to prepare for the coming Messiah. He had baptized thousands in the Jordan River, thousands who were repenting of their sins and putting their faith in Jesus Christ. John had even dared to speak truth to power, something that is very lacking in our society today, even amongst us as preachers. We sometimes hesitate to speak truth to power. John did not. In fact, he dared to tell King Herod that because of the fact that he had taken his brother's wife as his own, that he was living in adultery. And because of that, he ended up in prison. All of that, all of his faithfulness to God, all of his preaching landed him in prison. And so while he was in prison, John's disciples brought a report to him of all that they had seen Jesus doing around town. He had healed a man's withered hand. Do you remember that story? He had healed all kinds of diseases. He had even commanded demons to come out of many. He went about teaching, love your enemies. Don't judge others. Make sure that your lives are producing good fruit, the fruit of righteousness. Build your houses on the solid rock. But even after hearing this report, John is still not sure what to believe. Because you see, preaching the gospel faithfully had landed him in prison. God had not spared him from that. And so should he believe this report or not? He's in doubt. And so he sends two of his disciples to Jesus with this question, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? In other words, I've been preaching that a Messiah more powerful than I would come. And his shoelaces I would not be worthy to untie. Are you really that one? Because I'm no longer sure. So when doubt gets the better of you, what do you do? What do you do? Some confront Jesus, Lord, are you really there? Do you care that I am drowning beneath deep waters? Some abandon Jesus altogether. And Jesus asked the rest of us who remain, are you going to abandon me in the same way that others have? Some hold on to Jesus for dear life, saying, Lord, my faith is weak, but I trust you. You have been silent, and it doesn't seem that you're answering my prayers, but my hope is in you. Indeed, you 
are my hope, as this article that um, Cindy sent us a couple weeks ago says, the Lord is my hope. I am weak right now. My faith is kind of stumbling, but you are my hope. I am holding on to you for dear life because you are my strength. And so faith does not mean the absence of doubt. And doubt does not mean the lack of faith. But in times of doubt, we need to press into God even more. So one of the notable examples of faith in the midst of doubt is that of a very frustrated father. And he brought his demon-possessed son to Jesus' disciples while Jesus was away on the mount, hoping that his disciples would somehow be able to cast this demon out of his son. But they could not. Then he finally brings his son to Jesus. And Jesus casts out the demon out of his son and says to the father, I quote him, all things are possible for the one who believes. But then I want us to notice the father's reply when Jesus says that to him. Mark chapter 9 and verse 24 reads thus, Lord, the man says, I believe. Help my unbelief. Now I translate this this way. Lord, I want to believe. I want to believe. Help my inability to believe. In other words, I have some doubt, Lord. Help me to believe. Our second point is this. Jesus is authenticated by his works. I want us to notice that Jesus doesn't answer um, John's question immediately or directly. Rather, he tells the messengers, go and tell John what you are seeing me doing. Tell him that you've seen sight restored to the blind. Tell him that you've seen the lame walk. Lepers have been healed of the leprosy. The deaf receive the hearing. The dead are raised and the poor hear the gospel, the good news of salvation preached to them. What is Jesus doing here? What he's doing is pointing John back to Isaiah chapter 61. He knows that when John hears these words, immediately his memory is going to be jogged by Isaiah 61. Because this is how it reads. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is a prophecy concerning Jesus who was the Messiah. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion and to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Jesus knows that the moment John hears that report that he sends back, that his memory would be taken back to Isaiah 61, 
that promised this Messiah. I want to say to us this morning from this particular text that Jesus just um, sent to John, that the Spirit of the Lord, the anointing of the Lord, and the power of the Lord were upon Jesus, which is why he was able to do these great works. And these works that Jesus did testified to the fact that he was the Messiah, the same Messiah that John had preached about and was expecting to come. And just in case you were tempted to say that these works that Jesus was doing, that these were in the past, just in case you were tempted to say that, let me hasten to tell you that the Spirit of the Lord, the anointing of the Lord, and the power of the Lord were never intended to be limited to the past. Never intended. The Spirit of the Lord, the anointing of the Lord, and the power of the Lord were intended for the church and for believers who make up the church. I want to say to us this morning that the Spirit of the Lord, the anointing of the Lord, and the power of the Lord can still heal every disease. You're going to hear me repeat those three things several times. I'm doing so for emphasis. That the Spirit of the Lord, the anointing of the Lord, and the power of the Lord can still bind up the brokenhearted. Are you brokenhearted this morning over anything? Whether from your immediate past or from your long-term past, it can still, your broken heart can still be bound up this morning by the Spirit of the Lord, the anointing of the Lord, and the power of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord, the anointing of the Lord, and the power of the Lord can still break every addiction. Do you believe that? Every addiction, every chain that binds people. The Spirit of the Lord, the anointing of the Lord, and the power of the Lord can still give people beauty for ashes. We all have ashes in our lives, ashes from our past. Again, whether from our immediate past or our long-term past. If I went through this congregation, I am sure that to a man, we will talk about the ashes of our lives. The Spirit of the Lord, the anointing of the Lord, and the power of the Lord can still give us beauty for our ashes. The Spirit of the Lord, the anointing of the Lord, and the power of the Lord can still give you joy instead of mourning. The Spirit of the Lord and the anointing of the Lord and the power of the Lord can still make you an oak of righteousness. There's none of us who was born righteous. We were born in iniquities and in sins, and yet we have been declared righteous. And you know something else? We are the planting of the Lord. The Lord himself plants us as oaks of righteousness. 
And when the Spirit of the Lord and the anointing of the Lord and the power of the Lord accomplish all these great things in and among us, God gets glorified. And then Jesus adds something else which I think is very significant. He says, blessed, in other words, he tells these, uh, these uh, John's disciples to go back and tell John this, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, the Greek word used here for offended is the word scandaliso, from which we get the word scandal. It means to cause to fall somebody into a trap, to cause someone to fall into a trap or a snare, or even into the sin of unbelief. In other words, Jesus is challenging John not to be offended by him or by the fact that maybe the way he was going about the kingdom and, and, and establishing the kingdom was different from what he expected. Don't be offended by me, John. The one who is not offended by me is blessed. So this was Jesus' way of challenging John to choose faith instead of doubt. I want to say to you this morning, to you who have, some, have had some things happen in your life recently which have made you doubt whether Jesus is real, whether he can get you out of the situation that you're in, whether it makes sense to even continue to trust him. I want to say to you this morning that so long as the spirit of the Lord, the anointing of the Lord, and the power of the Lord are available, anything is possible. Anything is possible. What Jesus did in the past, he can do again, so that God may be glorified by what he is able to do in you and in our church. Now, thousands of years ago, thousands of years ago in another time and in another culture, when justice was being perverted, when the lie had been replaced by the truth, and when God seemed idle, lazy, and distant, because sometimes God seems that way, you know, Sometimes God seems idle, sometimes he seems lazy, sometimes he seems distant, and he's not really hearing the prayers, or it seems that way, that he's not hearing or responding to our prayers. And so in that culture, there was a little-known prophet. We don't know a lot about him. In fact, there were only three chapters in the Bible devoted to him. But this little-known prophet decided to go before God in prayer and this was his prayer. Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 2. He says, well, he prays, Lord, I have heard of your fame. In other words, I've heard about the things that you have been doing that have made you famous. I stand in awe of the things that you're doing, your deeds. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. Now, translate that into our language. It would be something like this. Lord, I have heard stories, stories of things that you did in the past, long ago. I've heard of how you saved people and how they joined our church and how our church grew in numbers. I've heard of how you restored marriages that were dead and, in fact, heading to the divorce courts. I've heard of how you healed sick people that the doctors gave up on. But Lord, I ask you to repeat those things 
in our day and in our time. Revive your work and revive our church so that we may rejoice and give you the glory for what you are doing in our day and in our time. I want to suggest to us this morning that in order for Brown's Chapel to continue to exist, Habakkuk's prayer must be adopted as our own. That is a prayer that we must adopt. Lord, we have heard of what you did in the past, but we can't live off of the past. We can draw some inspiration from it, but Lord, would you do in our day and in our time the things that you did long ago? Habakkuk's prayer must become the ongoing prayer of our church. Here's our final point this morning, that the Messiah is greater than the messenger. Jesus asked John's um, disciples, what then did you go out to see? In other words, he's talking about the thousands who were joining John in the wilderness as he was out there preaching. Many people, thousands of people were going out to hear John preach. So Jesus is asking them, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And so John's greatness as a prophet can be seen from the many who were flocking to hear him preach. John was the one of whom God had said in the book of Malachi, chapter 3 and verse 1. In fact, that is the very book that Jesus is quoting from here when he says, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. John was that messenger who had announced that a Messiah was coming to deliver his people. And John went before the people to prepare the way for them, inviting them to get ready to meet this Messiah who was establishing his kingdom. But as great as John was, in fact, Jesus says that of, of those who were born of women, there was none greater than John. As great as he was, nothing compared. He was nothing compared to the least person in God's kingdom. Because listen to what Jesus says, that among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. We are. Those of us who come into the kingdom that Jesus came to establish, responding to the message of salvation, Jesus says of us that we are greater than John. This says nothing of the Messiah himself, who is greater than all. The Messiah is greater than the one who came announcing or bringing a message. Because you see, any messenger who goes before you is just announcing for somebody else. The person of whom he's announcing is much greater than the messenger. And then Jesus closes this section in this passage by describing the people of this generation, not our current generation, but the then generation that he was addressing. And he asked these questions, Jesus does. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace 
and calling to one another, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, a funeral song, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet, wisdom is justified by all her children. Now, some people describe this section here as the parable of the brats. <laughs> the parable of the brats. What a description. Jesus compared the then generation of people to, to brats, if you will, because they, they were on the sidelines. They stood on the sidelines, and they would not play street games because others would not play by their rules. Now, we have a way of saying in the Caribbean, we love cricket, and if you upset somebody who brings the ball and the bat to the game, if you offend them, they just take the bat and the ball and they go and they leave you stranded like that. All right? Bratty people. Jesus says this of them. Because people are not playing by their rules, um, they would not play. And so these people complain that God's plan was not going quite according to their expectations and their demands. Because you see, neither John who came dressed as someone in camel's hair, nor Jesus who came eating and drinking with prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners, neither of them fit, quite fit the description that they were looking for. And so there was some doubt there. John was too legalistic, and Jesus was too accommodating. And so they, they couldn't relate to either one. And yet we see that God used both men, although of differing personalities, God used both to accomplish his redemptive purposes in the earth. That's why Jesus says that wisdom is justified by all her children. And so when Jesus chooses to act differently than our expectations, when God chooses to work differently from how we expect, that need not produce doubt, but faith. Which brings us to our bottom line this morning, that we need to allow our faith in God to overcome every doubt that we have. Now, if I were to take a poll this morning, I know that many of you would say, even the strongest of us in our faith, would say that there are times when we are overcome by doubt. We wonder if God is there if he really hears us, if our prayers are being recorded in heaven, if God would come through for us, all of us are going to go through times when our faith is severely tested. And yet during those times, God expects us to press more into faith and to overcome our doubt that way. I want to end this message this morning, but not before giving you three challenges. The first of which is this. Welcome Jesus. I don't know who I'm speaking to this morning, whether here in person or joining us virtually. Welcome Jesus as your Messiah. 
The Bible tells us that Jesus came as the Messiah, but notice carefully that he did not come as the Messiah only of the Jewish people who were his people. He came first to them, but not only to them. He came to be your Messiah as well, especially, especially your Messiah. He came to save you from your sins. He has saved some of us from our sins. I'm proud this morning, yet humbled to say that he has saved me from my sins. I needed a Messiah the same way that you do this morning. The angel said to his mother Mary when he was just before he was being born, call his name Jesus because he will save his people, including you, from their sins. And so I said to you this morning that you who need saving, saving from your sins, whatever those might be, will you let Jesus save you this morning? Is there somebody here this morning who needs to let Jesus save them? I ask you to just take a moment and ask Jesus to do just that. No fanfare. No public announcement, nothing. Just in the quiet of your heart and in your seat, invite Jesus to be your Messiah. Secondly, this morning, I want to challenge you to place your faith in Jesus and not in the messenger. I think I need to say that again. Place your faith in Jesus and not in the messenger. A messenger's job is to prepare the way for somebody greater, to announce somebody greater. When you go to a concert, perhaps you have an MC or an announcer, and his job is to announce that this great artist, whoever he or she might be, is about to come on stage. That's his job. Not to take the limelight, not to take the spotlight, but to make sure that the spotlight is placed on somebody greater. And so I say to us this morning that those of us who are, who are privileged to lead in a public way because of God having called us to do that, we are merely messengers. Messengers. Our job is to decrease so that Jesus may increase. I want to say to you this morning, trust us, trust us, we want to be trusted, but trust us only to the extent that we are living and leading ethically. Can I say that again? Please trust us, myself included, but only to the extent that I'm leading God's church in an ethical way and I'm living my life in an ethical way. Put your faith and your hope only in Jesus. Now I say that, and as I say that, I say it in a culture where more and more church leaders are falling and causing the people they lead to experience much damage in their faith. I want to say to you this morning, don't trust the messenger or your faith will be dashed when they fall. Trust in Jesus. Make your faith in Jesus paramount 
to your trust in any messenger. Thirdly and finally, let us make the prayer of Habakkuk our own prayer. Let us adopt Habakkuk's prayer as the prayer of our church. Habakkuk's prayer teaches us that, God, that the God who did it long ago will do it again and can do it again. If he parted the Red Sea long ago, he can part your Red Sea today. If he made a way through the wilderness long ago, he can make a way through your wilderness today. If he made Jericho's walls to fall long ago, he can make your personal walls to fall today. If he breathed life into dead bones long ago so that they came roaring back to life, then he can make your dead situations come alive today. Lord, repeat your deeds in our day and in our time for your glory. Let us pray together. God, we are so grateful this morning that you, the one whom we trust, you are greater than any messenger. You indeed are the greatest. Our faith in you, O oh God, is well-founded and well-grounded. We ask you, God, that you'd help us to be people of faith, even with our doubts. Still help us to trust you. Still help us, Lord, to lean not on our own understanding, but to lean hard on you, even during times of testing and trial. We ask, God, that you'd help us to be people of faith. People who make you our hope, our confidence, and our trust. So that we might say, like Habakkuk, that though the fig tree shall not blossom, and there be no cattle in the stall and no fruit on the vine, yet still we will trust in you, O God. Even if our prayers are not being answered the way we want them to be and in the time frame that we expect them to be, still we will trust in the Lord our God. Even though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Even if I end up in prison, I will hope in him. Give us that kind of confidence and that kind of faith in you. As we live out the truth of your word this week, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.